0: Imagine it's your first day in a big new job.
1: you got to learn your co-workers' names, figure out your way around a complicated new office, figure out what your basic responsibilities, what your job even is. It is very busy. So for people that don't uh, understand, there's a lot to it even before you get sworn in. There was a lot of work that went into preparing and getting things in order.
0: And that's before you even get down to trying to do your actual job
2: and I've been working the whole time. We kind of just dive right in and hit the ground running and definitely very excited to continue now with my official badge as a state representative.
1: That's the situation for nearly a third of the state lawmakers who recently reported to the state capitol for their first day of session.
0: Term limits, redistricting, and resignations paved the way for an unusually large freshman class.
2: Yeah, I'm Elizabeth Velasco, Um, I represent House District 57, I live in Glenwood Springs, and I am 35 years old.
1: Byron Pelton, and I live in Sterling, Colorado. So my age is 47, and I am a master electrician, and we also own um, cattle. We just have a small cow-calf operation, my wife and I do.
3: Regina English, and I live in Colorado Springs, Colorado, El Paso County.
2: My name is Javier Mabry, I'm 32 years old, and I live in Denver. When I'm not lawmaking, I am an eviction defense attorney at a nonprofit that I helped start. I represent tenants who are facing eviction and other issues uh, with the housing.
1: Over the next four months, these new lawmakers and the rest of their colleagues We'll try to hash out policies on some of the biggest issues facing the state on guns, government spending, housing, education, criminal justice, health care. And I could go on, but I won't.
0: <laughs> Save that for our next episode. Yeah. <laughs> but as work gets underway at the state capitol, we're back at work in your podcast feed to catch you up on how things are going so far and where they might go from here.
1: This is Purplish from CPR News, a podcast about Colorado politics, policy, and for the next four months, the 2023 legislative session. I'm Andrew Kenny,
0: And I'm Benta Berkland.
1: All right, here's the lay of the land. Democrats are starting this session with an unprecedented level of power. They have the largest majorities they've ever held in the legislature, 46 of them to 19 Republicans in the House. 23 Democrats against 12 Republicans in the Senate. That was not expected. We thought maybe Democratic majorities would shrink a little bit with these elections. And instead, there's just an unbelievable number of Democrats running around that building right now.
0: I think everyone was surprised. Republicans, Democrats, no one expected Democrats to pick up seats in the state legislature. At the top of the ticket, people did think Democrats would do well. And I think they exceeded those expectations there as well. We have Governor Jared Polis. He won reelection by nearly 20 points. And the other statewide elected officials also won by sizable margins.
1: And they're all Democrats. So now the question is, The dust settling and the session beginning, what are Democrats going to do with two more years of power, of greater power, of embiggened power, of enlargificated power?
0: We could see some real divisions come out into the open between the most conservative or moderate Democrats and then the progressive Democratic lawmakers. And that will certainly have an influence on policies that pass.
1: That's right. When there's more Democrats, there's more debate between Democrats, perhaps. And that could be a challenge. They have to decide just how far to go, how bold to be on some of those issues we named. Guns, renters' rights comes to mind. It's the question of how much you do. And that's quite a different situation than national politics, where we're entering a new period of divided government, where we're not going to expect to see a lot of big policies get passed in the next couple years.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And we'll actually get an update on what's going on in Congress and what happened with that whole speaker fight from our colleague, Caitlin Kim, later in this episode. So she was there firsthand to witness everything.
1: Yes. And I haven't grilled her about it yet, so I'm excited. But first, Benta, you and I have been at the state capitol since the opening gavel, and there's plenty to talk about here in Colorado.
0: Before we get to talking about some of the policies, opening day at the Colorado Legislature had just a little bit of drama. Just
1: a bit, and just like in D.C., the drama was about who was gonna be the House Speaker. In this case, who was gonna be the Speaker of the Colorado State House.
0: Yeah, and it's unusual here because the way our state legislature picks a speaker is usually sort of a big bipartisan moment. Mm -hmm. The majority caucus has already made it known who they've selected for speaker, so that happens a few days after the November election. And everyone in the entire chamber usually votes for that
1: person. That's right. It's almost kind of quaint now. Both parties get together and unanimously vote for the person who's going to head the chamber. But it did seem like it was going to happen again, at least for a few minutes. The majority leader for the Democrats nominated that party's pick, Julie McCluskey, for speaker. And the minority leader, Mike Lynch, a Republican, seconded that nomination.
2: In respect for this institution, and in respect for the traditions, I respectfully second the nomination
3: of Speaker McCluskey.
1: But then, a This freshman Republican comes up to the mic. By the way, that was my Tim Allen grunt impression. But this freshman Republican comes up to the mic, a guy named Ken DeGraff, and instead of supporting McCluskey, the Democrats, he nominates another freshman, a Republican. For Speaker.
2: I cannot endorse with my vote someone who has made a thing out of another human being, especially for purposes of revoking the right, the endowed right to life, which thereby vacates the rights of all mankind, making us merely subjects of a tyrannical state.
1: So instead of this unanimous show of support for McCluskey, you get this pretty intense speech against her.
0: This is just not normally done, but I would say it's not unprecedented. In fact, I'm kind of wondering if it will become the new normal, because it was only two years ago that a similar thing happened. In that case, Republicans nominated their own minority leader to be speaker. They were trying to show their opposition to just the way things were going in general politically.
1: But what's different this year is that Republicans were actually not unified in their opposition to McCluskey. You know, again, the minority leader, Mike Lynch, did not support going against her. And a few Republicans actually argued it was a bad idea to start this way, to start by challenging the selection of the Speaker.
2: Historically, in this institution, the Speaker of the House has been a unanimous vote by all the members because it's a Speaker for the entire chamber. And it's really important that if someone like myself from the minority party comes to the Speaker, I want her to know that she's not just representing one party or one caucus, but she's representing the entire chamber. The entire institution of the House of Representatives and that she holds that above any partisan fray that we throw. But the other reason is that over and over again, I've heard from my constituents across Colorado saying, Matt, I don't want Colorado to be like Washington. I want you guys to rise above the fray, to do better. This is where we can do better than Washington.
0: It does feel like some of the Republican lawmakers were influenced by what recently happened in the U.S. House and that week-long stalemate over selecting Kevin McCarthy as speaker.
1: Yeah. And even if they weren't directly influenced, it's a sign of the same trends where the level of disagreement is so intense that you hear folks like Ken DeGraff saying, I can't support you because we are so morally split. We're so different. And so, yes, we'll see this right-wing resistance disrupting the normal flow of things. One crucial difference being the uproar in the House, uh, sorry, the U.S. House, actually resulted in concrete changes and Speaker McCarthy making some concessions. Whereas in Denver, the Republican objectors didn't really have any leverage to make real change. It was just more of a break in decorum and a way to broadcast their message.
0: So I happened to be in the Senate when all of this went down. Mm -hmm. Things were pretty calm. Mm -hmm. What was it like in the House when all this happened? It was symbolic, but did it change the mood of opening day?
1: You know, I watched as Ken DeGraff gave his speech, and I noticed that top Democrats really kind of huddled around McCluskey, and it seemed like a show of support shielding her, and she looked quite impassive. She kept her face still as DeGraff was talking about slavery and jackboots and genocide, most of that in reference to McCluskey's support of abortion rights. In the end, when they voted, it was not close. Less than half of the Republicans actually even voted for the GOP nominee, And that turns out to be like eight people out of 65 in the chamber. Everybody else went for McCluskey. So really a rhetorical road bump on the first day.
0: Well, in the Senate, what was interesting is the Senate president, Steve Femberg, he was Senate president in the last session, Mm -hmm. and Minority Leader Paul Lundine have very similar outlooks on lawmaking and the process of lawmaking, even if they disagree on policies, which was, of course, going to happen. They don't support partisan infighting just for the sake of it, trying to score what one of them said, cheap political points, Mm. um, trying to get the most hits on Twitter or whatever. And Fenberg, you know, in his opening day remarks, encouraged state senators to really try to get to know each other outside of the Capitol.
1: Get that beer after a long committee hearing. Sit in each other's offices and get lost in conversation visit each other in our districts, get to know each other's families. If we can commit to doing the most human thing possible that we as people can do, building relationships, then we're more likely to solve problems not as Democrats or Republicans, but as Coloradans.
0: He said that goes a long way to encourage you to have a more open mind even on policies. And he told them to read bills but cover up who's sponsoring the bill and who's co-sponsoring it to occasionally do that and see if that changes your perspective. And also Femberg credited the Senate minority leader Paul Lundeen for being a very calm and mature person and helping Femberg navigate those tough policy discussions and those unexpected points of contention that always come up during any legislative session.
1: I wonder if that kind of collegial attitude, the idea of keeping the state house different than Congress will subsist or not, will continue into the future. We'll see, because you know, of course, there's different trends that shape that. For example, on the right, Republicans are losing their moderates. They have a smaller and a further right caucus that wants to really oppose what the Democrats are doing. So we'll see how they handle those objections and how it affects the culture of the Capitol.
0: Yeah, because even though Republicans are out of power in the House, a very small minority. That party still will shape policy discussions Mm -hmm. and debates and can have a pretty big influence on how smoothly or not floor debates go.
1: Yeah. You know, Mike Lynch said in his speech, the Republican leader in the House, that they don't have a lot of actual power to shape policy. And in the absence of that power, I don't know, maybe it is more effective in some way to speak loudly if you don't actually get to vote loudly.
0: Well, Republicans, I think some of them certainly will do their best to try to do that and hold Democratic bills back, even though they do not have the votes. I think one of the big questions, though, is how far Democrats themselves are willing to go on certain policies. And that will really be critical this year, especially.
1: Let's talk now about Democrats and the pressure they'll face among their own members to go further on certain topics to introduce new legislation, one area that will test that is the question of gun reform.
0: Yes, this is something where a lot of Democrats have run on the issue of gun violence prevention and they do want to to do more on that issue. But Democrats don't always agree on what the best policies are and how far the state should go, for instance, on things like gun control.
1: They've also sometimes been shy about it in the wake of those recalls that happened right after they passed gun legislation about a decade ago. But this year, we saw gun law reform in the opening day speeches even.
3: The Colorado Dream is built on safety and security. Everyone deserves to feel safe in their communities, schools, on the playground at the grocery store, without the fear of gun violence striking at any
2: time.
0: One idea we're hearing from Democrats is to increase the age for purchasing certain types of firearms.
1: And that's following quite a number of high-profile mass shootings where the, the shooter, the suspected shooter, was quite young, late teens, early 20s.
0: Another idea, and I've heard this from Democrat Judy Amabile, she's in Boulder. She wants to introduce a bill that would impose a waiting period on all firearm purchases in the state. And she sees that less about mass shootings and more about suicide prevention. So she really thinks this type of legislation would reduce suicides in Colorado. And clearly, these two policies would be highly controversial. I think that's putting it mildly. (laughs) And we'll have to see if Democrats are how aligned they are on this. But given their big majorities, they can still lose a number of votes and a bill can pass.
1: One other thing that gun rights supporters are raising as a possibility is that Democrats will consider an assault weapons ban. We've not seen a bill introduced to that effect yet as of this taping, but certainly those opponents are raising it up and rallying support around that and promising a big fight over gun law in general this year.
0: And the aspect of all this where I think there could be broader agreement and bipartisanship is around mental health. Mm -hmm. You do hear from a, a lot of opponents to these types of laws say, look, that doesn't fix anything. We need to focus on mental health instead. Democrats say we need to do both but I think there will be more coming together when it comes to the focus on mental health, which we've seen in recent sessions. And one bill that caught my attention would allow schools to hire counselors and therapists Hmm. without those counselors and therapists having to get certified by the state. So that certification can prevent schools from being able to have therapists on site. So the idea is that this could really increase the number of young people and students who can get help while they're at school especially in rural areas where you don't have as many health care providers.
1: That's interesting. We may see some agreement then on trying to provide more mental health treatment, but we're still going to see disagreement on what to do in, for example, red flag cases where someone with severe mental health issues who's is making threats Democrats want to expand the law that allows guns to be taken from those people, while Republicans are going to oppose that expansion. So there may be that agreement, again, on mental health as an issue, but there will be disagreement on what to do with guns and the intersection with mental health. One thing you've heard me talk a lot about over the last couple of years, and I certainly my ears broke up when I heard it mentioned in the opening day speeches, is the topic of housing. This is only exciting to me, but they even went so far as to put the word housing in the names of some of the legislative committees. I know. Hold on to your (laughs) shorts. That's crazy.
0: Big news. But I I think, you know, even (laughs) though that seems minor, it does give a clearer direction for when bills are introduced. Uh what committee they're definitely going to go to. It prioritizes that as a focus of that committee. And then also lawmakers may go on to that committee because they do want to hear all of the housing bills and then get more of an expertise in that area.
1: And it was kind of remarkable that for as much of a issue housing affordability has been, it wasn't in the big objective, the central mission of the state legislature until recently. And now you see Governor Polis talking about it in his pre-session appearances. He's going to most likely talk more about it in State of the State. Democratic leaders are raising it. I mean,
0: when we talked to a lot of voters before this election, pretty much everyone we talked to across the political spectrum talked about cost of living, affordability, housing. And so I think that will be a big focus. And Polis talked about how the state needs to work with cities to do things like reform zoning codes. I don't know how easy it's going to be to get some of that done Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with local control and what cities have control over.
1: Yeah, cities don't want the state stepping in and saying, hey, build more housing for the most part.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I imagine they're not going to really like that. So I think that'll be fascinating to see how that plays out.
1: Let's not go any deeper into that for the sake of the listener, because I'm going to make them listen to so much more of me talking about housing later in the season. Let's move on.
0: Let's talk about the only thing state lawmakers are constitutionally required to do for the next four months. Yes. (laughs) Pass a balanced budget. I think it may be a little trickier this year in a different way than it has been in recent years.
1: Which is saying something because the budget is always extremely complicated. But the big difference is that the last couple of years they've had a lot of federal stimulus money booming state revenues, they had more to work with. So it made it easier in some ways to make decisions about what to spend money on without all this fighting. And now we are bumping up against the revenue limits and the threat of a recession and looking at a tighter budget.
0: Yep. So it's a little bit more of a return to normal. And state lawmakers will really have to spend a certain amount of time grappling with limited resources, where and how to spend money.
1: Too big things that I expect to hear about are, first of all, property taxes. We all know that property tax bills continue to go up, and Governor Polis and others want to kind of blunt that increase, use state funding to reduce the impact of higher tax bills on property taxpayers. We also will hear debates about TABOR reforms, and some Democrats have floated the idea recently as it's been reported of getting rid of TABOR refunds and using that refund money on education instead That's probably just the start of what we're going to hear about on the budget.
0: And then there are also a lot of interesting just kind of one-off bills that aren't necessarily part of some larger package of a Mm. bunch of bills on one issue. And so even in these first few days, we've seen some surprising things come out.
1: One that caught my eye was a Democratic bill to limit the cost of EpiPens. The auto-injectors that can stop anaphylactic shock, they're life-saving devices. But if you're paying retail, they can currently cost more than 600 bucks for a two-pack. This law would try to intervene and set limits on about 60 bucks for that purchase.
0: And I'll mention a bill that our editor first alerted me to, and it would set up a bullet replacement hunting program. And hmm. so the idea <laughs> here is to encourage non-toxic bullets for hunting.
1: Yeah, you know, that one I kind of laughed at because the idea of a non-toxic bullet mm-hmm. seems kind of ironic. Would hate to have a bullet do any harm, but actually it's all about lead and the way that bullets used in hunting can degrade and cause problems for wildlife for birds. Anyway, one other one that caught my eye is a bill requiring passenger vehicles in roundabouts to yield to large trucks. Gotta admit, I haven't really read much into this, but it caught my eye because uh, roundabouts are confusing already. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I really struggle with roundabouts. <laughs> I, I feel like no one, including me, really knows how to drive in a roundabout. <laughs> Whenever I'm in one, I'm just terrified I'm going to be sideswiped by someone.
1: You know, I think I'm pretty good at roundabouts because there's only there's one rule. You you don't get in until nobody's coming. And now there's going to be two rules for roundabouts. I don't know. <laughs> Convince me. I want I want to hear about why we need another rule for roundabouts.
0: It seems like we could see a, a lot of these bills that maybe don't spend a lot of money.
1: But do try to change behavior. We'll see bills overall that I think are controversial, that have some big ideas in them. But again, because the budget's not available, aren't going to necessarily introduce a huge new government program.
0: Because we're not heading into an election year, those legislative sessions are the sessions where more substantive and bigger policies pass because everyone's not running for re-election. So we uh don't see as many what we refer to as messaging bills that you do want to get that message out there, but you don't expect it to pass, but you still want the hearing and the debate. We'll have to see, you know, with Republicans with a much smaller minority, maybe we do see more messaging bills. I don't know. And then the other unknown is that We have so many new lawmakers that we're still getting to know. So it's harder to predict what their governing style is.
1: Yeah, bringing new life experiences, new priorities, and maybe a willingness to take on topics that earlier lawmakers were not. Before we wrap up, let's switch, like we said we were going to, from Colorado's state capital and talk for a few minutes about a little place I'd like to call America's state capital. The Denver on the Potomac, a.k.a. Washington, D.C., where one of our representatives, Lauren Boebert, was in the thick of the recent political upheaval.
0: At first, Andy, I didn't know what you meant by America's state capital. I
1: don't know what I meant either.
0: <laughs> but from our national state capital, I guess, we will be joined by our <laughs> colleague, Caitlin Kim. She's here with us now, and she toughed it out for those endless rounds of speaker votes the yes. other week, and we have her here on the line, Halen. Hey,
1: Hi. So I understand that. I can hear that you've been sick. Uh, was it pretty much since Kevin McCarthy clinched the speakership? What happened? I ground you down.
3: <laughs> yeah, it was actually probably the 15 votes that, that McCarthy <laughs> had to go through that wound me down. Over what, four, five, I don't know how you count like votes that happened after midnight if you count that as day
1: five, <laughs> but yeah, that's what did it. Well, I'm wishing you a speedy recovery.
3: And
0: so, Lynn, I kind of feel a little guilty saying this because I was on vacation, so I did not watch the days and days of drama as McCarthy tried to get those votes. I looked at a few headlines here and there from afar, but what was it actually like to be there through all of that? You know that movie Groundhog Day?
3: Yes. It was Groundhog Day. It was basically every day you get in there, do you think you have the votes? You're going to vote today, like You'd have the same votes, it'd be the same 20 people not voting for McCarthy. Um, And then you did that over and over and over again. You know, there was this quote this about how insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Yeah. You felt like that was going on. One reason over all of it that it felt like Groundhog Day was that it was hard to make any progress. You know, as Colorado Representative Ken Buck pointed out, that group of 20 holdouts, you know, we all lumped them together, but they all wanted different things.
2: You've got some people that just aren't going to vote for Kevin. you got other people who want um, a deal on rules, and then you got another group that wants a deal on policy.
1: And right in the middle of all this, as she often is, again, was Colorado's own Lauren Boebert.
3: Right. You know, for better or for worse, she was involved in some of the talks with McCarthy and the different factions for a few months leading up to the start of this most recent Uh Congress, eighteenth. but kind of blew apart early on after an argument over committee assignments. Hmm. And after that, Bulbert was solidly in the Never Kevin faction. And it didn't seem like she was really in the negotiations after that. I want a unified
0: Republican Party so badly. And he rejected it. That's on him.
3: So Boebert never did end up voting for McCarthy, right? That is correct. In the end, she and the last five remaining holdouts all voted present. And what that did was lower the threshold for voting members and the number that Kevin McCarthy needed to cinch the speakership down from 218 to 216.
1: Okay, so she and the others kind of did get out of the way at the end. What has she said since McCarthy actually won the speakership? Is she claiming victory here?
3: Yes, because in many ways she did when she and the other holdouts forced McCarthy to make concessions and she still didn't have to vote for him in the end. <laughs> because we stood strong and held our ground, we will now have the opportunity to vote on term limits. Because we stood strong, we will vote on border security. Because we stood strong, we won't be forced to vote on thousand page bills in the dead of night without having time to read them. You know, I'm going to go out on the limb and say no matter who's in charge, Republican or Democrat, the House will still end up passing huge bills in the dead of night Mm -hmm. just because debates take time. I mean, the Uh final speaker vote and the swearing-in ceremony for the 118th happened in the middle of the night.
1: No, that's the last time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Bobert mentioned term limits, and I think that bill is kind of interesting because that's something Colorado lawmakers have lived with. We talked about this earlier in the purplish episode, but we have so many new lawmakers. And part of that is due to term limits because it really keeps people cycling in and out of the legislature. I think everyone sees a lot of pros and cons.
3: Right. I think, though, for Congress, where longevity and seniority impacts like committee assignments, that's sort of the, the tricky issue. I, I will say I'm interested to see how people will vote on the term limits issue. It would be three terms in the House.
1: That's the proposal. Yeah. Wow. Well, even shorter than what Colorado allows. Does that have to be passed as a law through both chambers and signed? Could? Yes. Okay. So yes. House Republicans can't just do it on their own.
3: Right. It would be three terms in the House and two terms in the Senate.
1: But hmm. probably that to happen.
3: That does no, seem pretty
0: not. short, you know, because in Colorado, You can serve eight consecutive
3: years in each chamber. Yes. And, you know, both uh, Republican representatives Doug Lamborn and Ken Buck and hosts of other Republicans have served more than three terms already. So, again, this is going to be an interesting vote to watch. But I think it's important to remember that most of these bills McCarthy agreed to to bring up Mm -hmm. will be messaging bills. They're not going to go anywhere in the Democratic-controlled Senate and with a Democrat in the White House.
1: So we talked about Boebert, but you also mentioned uh, Representatives Buck and Lamborn, where does the speaker drama leave them? They were McCarthy loyalists; they stuck with them. Does that get rewarded, or do they end up in the back seat because all the attention is now on Bobert and the rebel faction?
3: I don't think they're going to be in the back seat either of them. I think, to be perfectly honest, both Buck and Lamborn have been in the House long enough. You know, they're hoping to chair subcommittees in this new Congress. So we'll see when the committee makeups come out mm-hmm. if they land those assignments. Lamborn's hoping to be the subcommittee chair for the Strategic Forces subcommittee in the Armed Services Committee. Buck was in line for some in the Judiciary Committee. As for the rebel faction, Boebert was looking to move one of her committee assignments to the Oversight Committee. We'll see if her actions from last week helped or hurt her in that effort.
0: So Caitlin, as you look ahead to the next year or two, what do you think this chaotic start says about how this Congress will operate?
3: You know, I hate to be like the negative Nelly here, but while Republicans may spin this as democracy is messy and there was robust debate, I really think it was a preview of how difficult it will be to pass even must pass legislation like raising the debt ceiling or dealing with any tough issue like immigration. Hmm. You know, here's one example. McCarthy promised the holdouts he wouldn't move an omnibus spending bill like the one Congress passed at the end of last year. Mm -hmm. Instead, the budget will go through as a dozen separate bills. But That will make getting all of it passed, you know, and reconciled with the Senate much, much harder. Now, I do agree with the argument Ken Buck is making, that in two years, voters probably aren't going to remember necessarily this, you know, disunified start to the Congress, Mm -hmm. or at least not vote on it. Uh You know, Buck says they'll only care whether or not Republicans delivered results, and that's what I'll be watching for, whether after a start like this, House Republicans can do the day-to-day job of governing well, Caitlin, thank you so much for
0: joining us on Purplish, even though you are feeling very sick, and we do hope you feel better soon. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Benta Brookland with my colleague, Andrew Kenny and Caitlin Kim joining us from Washington, D.C. This episode was produced by Shane Rumsey and edited by Megan Verley.
1: We will be back in your podcast feed soon. If you're not already a subscriber, be sure to sign up. Make sure you don't miss it. And if you're enjoying Purplish, please recommend us to your friends.
0: This is Purplish from CPR News.